You know what's worse than failing? It's not even trying. What's the point of being here if you don't give things a shot? That's what we're all about on this podcast, but we're here to minimize failures, which is why we've partnered with Yotpo for this series. Yotpo has helped thousands of e-commerce businesses of all sizes to grow. Or put another way, they've helped thousands of cool D2C brands not fail. You know the former footballer turned founder Hal Robson Carnu? His company, The Turmeric Co., saw a 600% revenue increase after just two years with Yotpo's reviews and loyalty features. Well, that could be because of loads of things I hear you say, but the proof's in the conversion pudding, and Wolfson Brands increased their ROI on their order flows by 49 times by adding Yotpo's SMS bump. Wild. Plus, your customers can now buy things by replying to texts you send through Yotpo. They don't even need to be on your website. Less friction means better conversion. So, if you're in e-commerce and want to reduce your chances of failure, then check out yotpo.com secret. That's y-o-t-p-o dot secret. Before it happened, uh, before the downturn caught us all by surprise, we were flying high. We thought we had it all figured out. That's Touraj Parang. In 2004, he started Jackster, which let people make phone calls over the internet before the iPhone or WhatsApp. And while Skype was still cutting edge technology, they were crushing it, but that's not how it ended. From Secret Leaders, I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is our bite-sized series dedicated to failure. We're doing this because failure is far more interesting and common than success, but we hardly ever hear about it. We're changing that with the help of entrepreneurs like Turaj sharing their lowest moments. Turaj today is a multi-exited entrepreneur who's just written a book called Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the experience that laid the foundations for his later success. His company, Jackster, had a honeymoon period from 2005 up until the financial crash in 2008. There was plenty of investment to be had, and their user base had surged to 10 million people. We were so excited by the number of users, by the number of signups we had. And we were just single-mindedly almost focused on growth and virality and converting those free users to paid users. We had a freemium business model of converting free to paid. Always took a backseat to just raw growth. Uh, we thought we could always come back. Once we have the users, we can come back and try to monetize them, upsell them, reactivate them, etc. But the trick was to get their email address and get them registered. So, you know, a bit of a vanity metric in hindsight, you know, focusing on registered users rather than active users or paying users. <laughs> uh, so there was a, a bit of a myopia in that sense. And we were very much focused on hiring the best team. You know, we, we had scalability. I mean, because we, we grew so fast, we had scalability issues. We, we noticed the fail well of Twitter and we didn't want that to happen to us. We were a communications product and telephony needs to be real time or it's not going to work. Text messaging, of course, uh, you, you have a little bit more tolerance for delays, but, you know, phone conversations, uh, which was our bread and butter, needed to be smooth and with good sound quality. So we were excited and we were single-mindedly focused. And, and one thing we decided, which turned out to be a strategic mistake, was that we would not pursue any distribution partnerships. We would not pursue any strategic relationships 
we would just be really focused on going it alone. And our ultimate goal was to go for an IPO. We were so convinced that we are among the very few that make it to an IPO. And therefore, we are putting all our eggs in one basket. We're going for the IPO. And we're not going to distract ourselves too much pursuing, you know, telcos or other strategic, uh, potential strategic acquirers or build relationships with, with them because who needs them? They should be coming to us. That, that was the mindset, right? Again, first time entrepreneurs, a bit naive and saw early traction and were quite enamored by it. As soon as, you know, all the bankruptcies and all the stock market uh, downturn happened, we we knew that, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to raise money. So we took a hard look at our burn rate and saw that realistically, we didn't have more than a year of runway. Now that took into consideration the 5 million venture debt we had raised for a rainy day. And we thought, well, this is a rainy day. <laughs> so um, thank God we raised the venture debt. We went to our board and gave them the information. And our board sort of looked at us funny and said, well, you know, you can't touch the venture debt right now, do you? And we're like, no, that's why we raised the money. <laughs> so that in case of uh, unknowns, it would be our insurance policy. So isn't this it, that exact scenario that we raised the venture debt for? And the board said, well, unless you have a clear path to profitability and sustainability, that you can show that your unit economics works, and, and these were Greek to us, uh, these, these terms were completely <laughs> new. We can't in, good, in our good fiduciary obligation to the lenders uh, let you touch that. Because after all, the investors have the repeat relationship with the lenders as, as entrepreneurs, we may or may not. So they were very much, um, our board was very much watching out for the loan and they, they were worried that we wouldn't be able to raise money afterwards to pay back the debt. So that cut our runway even shorter. We realistically had only six months to do something or we'd have to shut down. So. It was intense, and and that just that lack of ability to dip into our venture debt uh, was just uh, you know kind of adding insult to injury, as they they say. Turaj's back was against the wall, and with just six months of runway left, he had to make some tough calls. So immediately we we kind of had to cut costs, so we uh, laid off a third of our workforce uh, over a span of two months. Um, was very difficult. When you when you spend three, four years assembling the best team and and you have to let them go, that, that just is one of the hardest things you can do as an entrepreneur. And you know, we made it our mission to kind of help and support every person that we laid off uh, to find other employment. But still, um, it was tough. And I personally had basically conversations with every single person. I, I was the one who had to convey the message to them. And they were gracious and they understood, but um, it's just, if any entrepreneur can avoid that scenario, do it. You don't want to be in that position. 
And after that, then we put our heads down and try to figure out uh, what are our options. Uh, investors were definitely no longer in the picture. So what else can we do? Gosh, those uh, acquirers uh, that we were not pursuing would have been very, very handy right now. So we made a list of our potential acquirers and started making phone calls or trying to figure out warm introductions. And by the time we got through all that, it took about another three months. And it was just too late to make any deal happen. Like now that I've been, I've done multiple company sales and I've been on the acquirer side for seven years, I have seen how long it takes for an actual successful acquisition to happen. And a lot of times it's a year or more of courtship. So we didn't have time for that. It was just a shotgun wedding we were looking for. Right? <laughs> and no and no one had really the appetite at that point to make strategic bets uh, unless they really knew you and had a relationship. They didn't have time to uh, waste on diligence and things like that. So uh, we ended up having to do a fire sale. There was one interested party It was another private company. They were interested in part of our user base that was in India and some of our technology, but they had no money. So it was basically we took their equity in return. And it was not an outcome that was financially satisfying for anyone involved. It was sad to see four years and more of hard work and a lot of uh, hopes just evaporate in a summer. Brutal. But that's startups for you. And the experience has clearly helped Tiraj in the long term. So what can we learn from this failure? So my biggest learning really was the strategic importance and the existential importance of having not only an exit strategy, but taking steps towards implementing it to pursue acquirers, um, relationships, build relationships with potential acquirers and have an ecosystem of allies and partners that in terms of hardship, you can actually draw upon or rely on and and not just kind of be so single-mindedly focused on your own execution that you kind of lose picture of the bigger ecosystem. The other companies that had started at the same time, they were smarter than us in that regard. They built those relationships. You know, Grand Central sold to Google, and uh, became Google Voice. Jaja sold to Telefonica for over $200 million. Ribbit sold to British Telecom for over 100 million pounds before they had even launched their product. So everybody else uh, had amazing exits except us, which, uh, which was uh, a painful lesson learned, which then I tried to reverse in my next startup. We all go through tough times and we all experience failure. So I wanted to know what Tiraj would say to someone who's just gone through the mill. Have empathy for yourself. Uh, we are all humans and we all mis- make mistakes. And a lot of times, even if we do everything right, it still could be that we're not going to make it in this uh, startup world. Again, most startups don't make it. So just because you didn't make it doesn't mean that you're a flawed human being or a flawed entrepreneur or leader in any any sense. In fact, I would say just going through that experience gives you such a broader perspective and depth of knowledge that makes you, at least in, in the eyes of investors, even more valuable as an entrepreneur 
as someone that's worth backing because you have had those growing pains. And now you actually get to implement the lessons learned. So I think uh, failure in a way should be considered a badge of honor. Not that you start a company to fail, <laughs> but that if it does happen, there is so much room to grow. And there, there are so many examples of also failed entrepreneurs, I'm sure, on, on your show and, and that have bounced back and done amazing things because of that failure. It is just a step in the process and everyone goes through it. People aren't successful because they don't fail. They're successful because they have failed at some point in time. You've been listening to our Bite Size series on failure and I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. If you want to hear more stories on failure, setbacks and how they impact success, then give us a follow on your podcast app and share the episode with someone who needs to hear it. See you next time. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.